Welcome to I Am the Space Where I Am. This is your host, Tony Award-winning set designer, John Arnone. In this podcast series, I'll be one-on-one with designers, playwrights, directors, and actors, and we'll be discussing the lives and careers of legendary theater luminaries and how their work developed. Thanks for joining us, and enjoy the show. Randy Moore is a founding member of Paul Baker's Dallas Theater Center and was in residence from 1961 to 1994. Among his over 200 roles there, favorites include Cyrano de Bergerac, Mark Anthony, Prospero, Salieri in Amadeus, Dysart in Equus, and Colonel Kincaid in the Texas Trilogy. From 1995 to 2012, he migrated to the Denver Center Theater, portraying Argon in The Imaginary Invalid, Polonius, and Scrooge. He has performed with Denver's Curious Theater Company, The Alley, The Old Globe, and the Colorado Shakespeare Festival. Today, Randy joins us to discuss the life and times of Paul Baker and the Dallas Theater Center. Welcome, Randy Moore. Charles Lawton, commenting about Paul Baker, said yes. that he was irritating, arrogant, nuts, and a genius. Accurate. <laughs> That's accurate. Why is that accurate, do you think? Well, yeah, he could drive you nuts. I mean, uh, when you were working with him, he, he was certainly had an ego, a big ego, but I think he was a genius. He He came up with stuff that I don't think had ever been done before, or seen before. Charles Lawton worked with him. I think when, when, he, when, when Burgess Meredith came down in the late 50s and did his Hamlet, and Paul Baker Meredith was playing Hamlet, but he had these three alter egos that went around with him and repeated lines and choral speaking and things like that. Well, that was very unusual. And then a couple of years later, he did it again with all of the major roles being played by three actors at the same time. I think this was called uh, Hamlet ESP. No, that was later. That was later in in Dallas. This was still in at Baylor. Oh, and it's it's what brought him national acclaim and the year before I went to Baylor he was in like 17 national magazines and he was really becoming quite well known I always thought if he'd been in New York he would have been a Joseph Papp or somebody like that he would have done he, if he had been in New York he was in Waco Texas you know he was from Waxahachie Texas <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought he was from Hereford Texas he's from well, Waxahachie well, I think it was Waxahachie. If he was born in Hereford, he was soon late, went to Waxahachie. I think his dad was a, a Presbyterian minister, I believe. He was a minister. One quote, since we're talking about where he came from, he said, I come from a sun-conquered and wind-conquered country. It is a cruel country. As a child, I was overwhelmed by the tremendous sky and great flat land. That space bounded by very distant horizons where flat earth met the sky seemed to me an infinity of distances. That was the first great space I knew. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sounds well, like Texas, doesn't it? it? Sounds exactly like it. <laughs> yeah. During World War II, he was an officer, I think a colonel, with the USO in Europe. And put on, you know, putting on shows and all that stuff. And while he was there, he, he went, was in Paris, he got to Paris, and he went to all the museums, and the art blew his mind. He was extremely influenced by Picasso and Cubism and all of those things that really not, in fact, a lot of the impetus for the three person Hamlet was, came from that experience in Paris. And the, the, the set was a very steeply raked ramp, a big ramp, that, so that you always saw the actors against the floor, like you do in those paintings, mm-hmm. where they put it every, you know, up against the, the, the floor. And you saw the actors 
always had the floor behind them because of that rake. I don't know how he got connected to Burgess Meredith and Charles Lawton, but he did. <laughs> and they came to Waco, Texas. That's amazing. He actually, uh, in World War II, he was a special services entertainment officer in Iceland and in Paris. Yeah. yeah. And he even was awarded the Legion of Merit for reorganizing the entertainment branch of the European theater. So Uh he was quite recognized uh, for that. Being influenced by the Cubist is well-documented. And it's interesting that you connect the Hamlet and the multiple characters, the multifaceting of the they, characters. They wore makeup that kind of split their faces up, you know. <laughs> it, it was very strange. But it, oh, that day when they made a, a brief film of, of the, this is still at Baylor, made a film of the one where three actors were playing all the major roles. And it won a prize at the Brussels Film Festival. Uh, it was a very successful little film that was quite interesting if you, to watch. I don't know what would how you would ever find it, but well, there are, there are some stills photographs that I've seen. Mm-hmm. There are several doctoral students that have done dissertations on this, mm-hmm. and you can actually read specific responses to the different productions that mm-hmm. you're referring to, and an actual script. Why don't we go back? Now, Mr. Baker was born in 1911. Two very influential women, Nina Vance and Margot Jones. Absolutely, yeah. Were born. Uh, Margot Jones, in fact, was born in 1911. Yeah. Well, the 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 Dallas Theater Center was built. Uh, a lot of the board members had been board members at the Margot Jones Theater, had worked there. And of course, she had died very tragically. They wanted to build. A new theater. The theater was first designed for a theater in the Hollywood Hills in 1915. But then, interestingly enough, Hartford, Connecticut Connecticut, uh, purchased it. And it fell through in Hartford because of zoning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was only after those two tries did the Dallas Theater Center, the board, win it. Right. Interesting. I think I'm, 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 pretty sure about this. I think it was the first theater built specifically to be a theater in the regional theater movement. Mm-hmm. The theaters, I mean, the Guthrie hadn't been built yet and the arena hadn't been built, yet, the alley hadn't been built yet. This was kind of like the first specific theater built because the, those theaters that did exist, they were in existing buildings that hadn't been designed originally as theaters. Frank Lloyd Wright said the Dallas Theater Center was designed to liberate the stage from the shackles of tradition (laughs) and offer an intimate means of dramatic presentation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mr. Baker said the Dallas Theater Center was conceived so as to give a place of discovery and growth to that rare and seldom used ingredient the creative mind. Ah, yeah. Well, that's that was the most important thing to him, the creative mind. That's really, that was his major feature, I think, as a person. Uh, he was a brilliant educator, and his major thing was to develop the creative part of a person. It's interesting, uh, because you go back and read his book, which was the, I guess, maybe the handbook for his teaching philosophy. It's called The Integration of Abilities. Yeah. And in it, he seems to me the basic sense of it is to assess all aspects of the senses, from sound to touch to space, and find ways in which these can be assembled into one creative act. When you went to Baylor and uh, you'd go to the theater department, the first course you took was integration of abilities. And the, the, the major project that you did in that course was you were to pick an object of nature, a rock, a leaf, a branch, a twig or whatever. And then he would, you would go through this whole thing. You would draw it many times. 
you would walk it out. You would clap rhythms that you got of this piece. I mean, so you do all these exercises and things all coming from a rock, <laughs> no. And then you had, then you developed a sort of a movement sound, whatever piece that you did. You see what you did and you got it from a rock. And it was fascinating to see. And he would have, have you clap out the rhythm of what he, of what you felt this rock was. He would have people clap out rhythms of someone they knew and clap out the rhythm. And then he would tell you what that person was like. And he was almost always accurate. Well, also a testament to your ability as an interpreter. Yeah, right. Yeah. Maybe we're in a good place to talk about where this all began. This class that you took was at Baylor University. Yes. yes. And maybe you want to speak to that in terms of when you met him, how it was that you attended Baylor, how you made that choice. In high school, I'd been into the on the speech circuit doing dramatic interpret and doing it. And I was very successful, won lots and lots of trophies. And then I did all the school plays all in high school. And I thought this is great fun. And then I had no idea what I wanted to do. I thought I was going to go to Texas A&M because my father was an Aggie. And but I thought Texas A&M is not the place to go if you're interested in the theater at that time. And so I went to my school counselor and I said, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in maybe studying the theater. Where, where should I go? The, the big place at the time was the University of Texas. Uh, it, that, they had the, kind of the largest theater department and that's where you kind of went. This was in Austin, right? Yeah, right. In, in Austin. And I, and I said, so is, do I need to go to the University of Texas? And she said, well, let me tell you something. There's this guy at Baylor <laughs> and she said, he's getting a whole lot of attention and he's really a creative genius. And he said, she said, I think you might enjoy that. And so my parents were devout Baptists. So they were thrilled that I would go to Baylor <laughs> uh, and go to the Baptist university. So that's how I went. I went with the thought that I would become a youth counselor in the, in the church and do plays with, you know, with kids and children. That lasted about two months. <laughs> <laughs> and I just got very, the, the place was this creative dynamo. I mean, it was the energy in the theater. The theater, by the way, was very unique. Again, his design, he had gotten in big with the Rockefeller Foundation and he built what was called Studio One which was had three stages in a sort of a horseshoe. The audience was down in a pit in revolving chairs. You could turn from one stage to the next. And then there was a, a raked thing in the back on the fourth side. Well, nobody had ever seen a theater like that. And it was fantastic. And then a few years later in the late 50s, middle of the late 50s, they opened Weston Studio, which was one of the first black boxes it was a black box studio. Well, again, people hadn't seen anything like that, but you just built the theater however you wanted it. But uh, that was, so that was very unique in what he had done there with theater architecture. Do you recall about how many people were seated in this theater? In studio One, it seated about 200. Oh, so sizable. Yeah, about 200. Mm -hmm. And Western Studio, however you decided you wanted the audience, how big you wanted the audience to be, there was no set. But was this primarily for classroom work or did you actually do? Oh, they, that's where you did the productions. That's ah. where you did the Hamlet. Ah. And it was interesting because in Hamlet, he, he had a soundscape underneath all of this. He had just piano soundboards, you know, just the sounding, you know, the piano which you hit on with mallets and you would emphasize lines and boom, bang. It was a, this a gorgeous, wonderful, wild soundscape that was going on underneath the play all the time with these piano sounding boards. And they were around you on these stages. You know, you couldn't see them, but they, it, it was all around you. <laughs> <laughs> were you in this uh, production of Hamlet? That no, I was not. I was not in that. That was, that was just before I got there. Oh. But, but, but my second year, my sophomore year at Baylor, we did Of Time and the River. This was the big, an adaptation of the novel, which was done 
by the entire theater department. We would meet in the afternoons, all of us, about 90 people. We were divided into small groups of five, six, seven people. And we would be given a certain number of pages from the novel. And Is this the Tom Wolfe novel? Yes, the Thomas Wolfe novel. And it was like, find a way to stage those 20 pages. <laughs> okay. And, and write a script. So we did. We did the first half of the book. Then we did the second half of the book. So he had all this huge, thick pages from this, because it's a big, big, it's an almost a thousand page novel. And, and with this was over a whole period of months and months. Then uh, all that <clears throat> material was given to the nine best playwriting students and they would take it and they were divided it into nine pieces for the students. And they, the, the nine playwrights cut it down, you know, made transitions, cut what use what you wanted. Then that was given to the playwriting professor, Eugene, Eugene McKinney. And, uh, he further condensed it. Then we started to work on it and try and stage it. And we would all stage our little pieces for him. And he would take notes on a recorder and, you know, this, and then we would, every day we would come in and along the, 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 this long hallway to the green room would be pages put up on the wall of cuts. You know, we'd take our script and you'd, you'd walk down and cut, cut, change, you know. <laughs> and uh, it came up with this, Played. Well, we were in rehearsals and uh, there was kind of a Greek chorus called The Senses, uh, of which I was one. And Wolf has all this incredibly dense, florid uh, language and descriptions. He was well, an incredible poet. Incredible right. Poet. Well, well, that's what we did. So we would do that as this chorus. We're in rehearsal and who shows up to rehearsal but Charles Lawton. <laughs> and he worked with us, the chorus, and he would get up and he loved Thomas Wolfe. He would do it in his one man show that he would take around. He would read a lot of Thomas Wolfe. So he would get up on the stage and he would read them, you know, read Thomas. We were all totally gobsmacked, you know, watching him. His wife, Elsa Lanchester, was there and, and they were a wild couple. They were strange. He, he had these baggy pants. His belt was a, a piece of rope tied around his waist. And he would be talking and so when he'd take a cigarette take this long inhale and then start to talk and the smoke would come out and come out and come out you got you go for five minutes with the smoke coming out while he was talking it was it, it was an amazing experience you're working with freaking charles lawton did you know? uh elsa lanchester participate also no, no she just sat in one of the swivel chairs and she'd swivel around and kind of every once in a while she'd kind of do a, ah, you know, or something, something when he'd say something. Were you, were you all aware of who she was? Oh, yeah, we knew who she was. And then when the show, oh, and then they, how this happened, I don't know. They got as the lighting designer for the show, Elliot Ellisoffen, a very famous photographer. Uh, he, he did lots of photographic essays for Life magazine and so forth. He was a, a really famous photographer. He was our lighting designer. And it was like stuff we'd never seen before. It was beautiful lights, gorgeous. Then there were projections and film. The Eugene McKinney, the play, he was also very interested in film. So they shot a lot of film and they mounted the projectors on swivel, swivel bases so like a spotlight and you, there were all these scrims all around on the stage and they could, you know, you shoot up onto the screen and they could move the image. And then you had lighting and the actors would sometimes be between scrims. It was wild. This wasn't video. This was filmed and yes. projected. Yes. Yes. They weren't of the actors. They were of flowers and various images and, you know, again, bolstering up Thomas Wolfe's language. If I'm not mistaken, wasn't of time in the river in the first season at the Dallas the Theater open, Center? It was the opening production of the, of the season. And of course, he couldn't do it the way he did it at Baylor with the three stages going around. He could only do it. It was like a cut down version of it a little bit. Mm -hmm. The photographs that I've seen of it, you can tell that there are a lot of projections. There's a very yeah. Cubist influence to it. Yeah. 
Yeah, Elliot Elsoffen had a lot to do with the projections too. I can't imagine that anyone had ever seen anything like this before. No, they hadn't. Locally. It, nobody had. And uh, opening night, Burgess Meredith, I think he had directed this produ- a production of Major Barbara on Broadway. Mm-hmm. It had, and it had Elia Kazan and Ann Jackson and I don't remember, all, all kinds of people in it. They closed down the production for one night. And the cast and Virgin, they all came to Waco, Texas for opening night of A Time in the River. I mean, what? Remarkable. <laughs> yes, it was remarkable. They got, came down to see it. And it was an incredible experience. Like, it was this creative, and that's where his genius was. He'd never seen anything like it. But Mr. Meredith of- also directed a production of Under Milkwood that season. Yes, he came down to Dallas and directed Under Milkwood. Right. Years and years later, came down and directed, which I was going to talk, I'm going to talk about later, the premiere of Patty Chayefsky's The Latent Heterosexual. We'll get to that. This is so exciting. Were any of the other students, when you were there, were they in the company that then transferred to the Dallas Theater Center? Some which of is, them. Uh, I'm also yeah. assuming that you went from Baylor to the to Dallas, Dallas Theater Center? Yeah, a couple was, of years later. It was very strange. When the theater center opened between Christmas and New Year's on 1959, I was still, uh, I was still at Baylor. I was a, a junior by this time. My family had gone to Dallas to spend Christmas with my aunt and uncle and her family. So I knew that this, that this theater was opening. I mean, we'd heard all about it, you know. <laughs> Uh, and I thought, I'm just going to go down. And I knew they were in final rehearsals and so forth. I'm going to go down and watch. <laughs> so I went down and I sat in the back and I'm watching tech rehearsals, which were a nightmare. The light board had just gone in like three days before opening. It was, and it was, it was the first of its kind. Texas Instruments had, deve- was, had developed these state-of-the-art dimmers, which were not like any dimmers that had ever been. And they had just put that thing in two or three days before. Mm. And so I, I'm down watching, uh, and it, I could tell this is a really fraught rehearsal. I mean, it's tense. And uh, then they, they started, the, the lighting designer who was up in the balcony by the light booth, he started yelling down at Paul Baker and Paul Baker yelling down up at him and then going back and forth. And then all of a sudden the lighting designer just walked out. Baker looked around and he saw his daughter, Robin Flatt, who was uh, a senior at Baylor at that time. She wasn't there yet, nor was I. We were sitting in on it and he said, Robin, Randy, get up to the light booth. You're going to run the light board. What? (laughs) A a board we'd never seen before or knew how to operate, any, whatever. But we did it. What can I tell you? I ran the lights, and finally, after a week or so into the run, well, I had to had to go back to Baylor, and so he finally got some the person that was at the theater to to learn how to run it. And, and but Robin and I ran the light board for the opening night and opening week at the Dallas Theater Center. I've noticed in some of your other credits down the line that you would design lights or take. Uh, that was my other. You know, we all did everything you know people worked the box office they built sets costumes and so forth my thing was lights i designed a lot of shows uh, sometimes i was in them in a small i would be playing a small part and i designed the lights but usually i wasn't in it and i would design lights yeah that was that was my thing <laughs> just to go back a little bit the production of of time and the river that you did at baylor yeah and the production that you were commandeered to to the emergency light design for. What was the similarities, differences, your impression of having worked on the production at Baylor to then see it transferred, adapted, truncated, edited at the Dallas Theater Center to open the the season? Well, it was different. Uh, I think it had been cut down a little bit because it was a long show, over three hours. 
And you couldn't achieve, without the three stages, you couldn't achieve some of the uh, visual and scenic effects mm-hmm. that had been done at Baylor. <laughs> and also, this brand new light board, dimmers kept blowing out. Of course. <laughs> I, I don't think it was near the experience that it was at Baylor. Yes, the <laughs> experience of Baylor sounds incredibly detailed and elaborate. Yeah, you could, it was elaborate and immersive and it couldn't achieve the same amount. And Dallas didn't kind of, kind of went, what is this? I mean, it was, they were like, we've never seen anything like this before. That was my response to all of the productions I saw you do when I was in high school mm-hmm. and got my driver's license and <laughs> put on my, you know, sp- striped sport jacket and yeah, yeah, tie yeah. every weekend and would buy a cheap seat up in that single balcony. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would go, what I've never seen anything like this before. Right. And quite frankly, you and the productions, I mean, Mary Sue and Preston and Robin Baker, and well, we'll get into all of that, but were the, my support group in terms of being inspired to go into the theater. Yeah. Because I was going to be a dentist. Oh, oh my. (laughs) And you guys turned my head around, but I want to go back. You said Robin Baker, you were students together. Were there any of the other company that ended up with you at the Dallas Theater Center students at that time? Yes. Well, of course, the Dallas Theater Center also was the graduate school of Baylor. Many of the people that were there were also in, there were classes, although the classes often didn't even meet because you were working really hard to get the shows on. And because in those first two or three years, he ran a repertory. So you would do two or three plays a week and you changed the scenery. So they were in repertory. They finally stopped doing that. There were a few people from Baylor who were up there. He went out and auditioned, which he, he always hated auditioning. He didn't like it. And he auditioned and he hired some some talented actors from from New York and wherever. Well, they didn't know what to make of all this. And they certainly didn't want to be building scenery or anything like that. Most of them left after the first season or so. They left because they said, they just went, I, didn't, I didn't sign up for this. And it was a non-equity house and remained so. For many years, it did not, we did not, the theater center did not go equity until the late, I think it was the late 70s. One thing I wanted to ask, when these uh, productions were in rep that first season, were you all able to attract an audience that would come to the theater more than once a month? Well, I think that was the problem. Again, Dallas didn't know what to make of this. What do you mean repertoire? What, you what show is on tonight? It was a foreign concept to the audience. Uh, ironically, that has contributed, uh, has been the major contribution, some people might even say, to why repertory has gone out the window. Yes. Because modern audiences cannot embrace the concept of coming to the theater more than once a month, say if yeah. you're even if you're living in Minneapolis and have yeah. the Guthrie or yeah. the Taper the in thing. Los yeah. Angeles, you know, yeah. the only way that it repertory revolving rep has been able to succeed is at the big festivals in Stratford and Ashland and so forth, because those are destination theaters and people go there in the summertime and they want to see two or three or four shows. In the course of a week. Even when I worked as a set designer at Stratford in Canada, the multiple shows were embraced because of that very fact that the audiences were there embracing the idea of the festival theater. That's why he only, only, he only did it like two, two or three seasons. Yeah, but you can't find that anymore. That simply doesn't exist. It's no, uh, No. you can't find an audience for it, but Where did people like David Persley or John Figamiller or Ken Latimer, Ryla Murky, Mary Sue, of course, and Preston mm-hmm. Jones, were these grad students or undergrad students that came from Baylor or mm-hmm. how were they acquired? Mary Sue was on faculty at Baylor. I figured that, yeah. And, mo- and she moved up to Dallas. 
he kept he went back and forth between Dallas and Waco, you know, every week because he was still the chairman of the department. Right. In in Waco, uh, Mary Sue and Mary Sue just came and stayed in Dallas. The rest of the people, Higgle Miller, Pursley, all just showed up from various parts of the country. I mean, personally, David went to Harvard. Bigel Miller was from Wisconsin. They came down because it was a graduate school and they could get scholarships for this graduate school and soon discovered that, that was a minor part of it. You were, you were there to do plays. So they were there as part of the graduate school. Right, everybody was. After those initial five or six actors that he hired, after they all left, Everybody there was a student. After you had kind of completed your classes after a couple of years, you would usually be asked to be part of the company. So you had a company of about 20, 25 people who had finished their classes. This actually sounds exciting in terms of the relationship that you all had to each other. I mean, if it, very organic in the sense that you were studied together as undergrads or grads and graduated into this idea of a company, of a group of actors, uh, to have these relationships so ingrained. Yeah. Well, your, your classes were in the morning, and then rehearsals were afternoon and night, or you had performance at night. You know, so that was your day. You were there 12, 14 hours a day, every day. You all uh, inevitably grew up and got older. I mean, you weren't <laughs> students forever. Did this idea of uh, undergrad or grad school students integrating into a company come to an end once you all had matured and it stayed as long as Paul Baker was there. Uh, when Adrian Hall was hired, the graduate school was phased out and did not exist anymore. Very quickly, in fact, when he came in, there was no more school. Well, your tenure, your time with Mr. Baker in the Dallas Theater Center covers the entire time that he oh, was there. Yes, I was there the whole time, I, 30 years. Well, I was there over because then I, I got into Adrian Hall's company. So I was there through him. Company idea stopped when Adrian Hall left and Richard Hamburger came. Uh, I did shows with Richard Hamburger, but that's when I started having to look for work elsewhere and uh, was very fortunate to get in the company at the Denver Center. Uh, excellent company and, and wonderful and, company and terrific actors. And so I never thought I'd leave Dallas. I was very, I mean, I've been there 30 some odd years. I was very, <laughs> I th as a young well, man, I thought I'd never leave Dallas either. <laughs> I never thought I'd leave. I was pretty well established, needless to say, and well known in Dallas, but I never thought I'd leave, but I did. And it's the best thing that ever happened. I mean, coming up to Colorado and being in the company in Denver was wonderful. Let's put that together a little bit and then we can move on. The graph of grad students infiltrating, influencing uh, a permanent or a, a established company over the 30 years that you were there, how did that change in terms of number of students or approach to the education or integration into the company? Was it more intense at the beginning and refined itself? Yes, it did change. First of all, classes became more important as things went on. And you, because you would have about maybe 15 people come in every year, you know, students that would come in and then company members became faculty. I taught for many years. I taught voice and diction and, uh, uh, and a Shakespeare acting class. I took a year off and I went to London and studied at Lambda for a year and came back. And after that, I started to teach. Did any of you veterans start teaching? All the faculty, just about, except for playwriting, theater history, were outside people who taught. All the acting was taught by company members. Randy, that's quite a powerhouse. <laughs> it was highly exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> you teach in the morning, you know, for average two, two to four hours or whatever in the morning, and then you go to rehearsal. You'd have lunch and go to rehearsal. And then you go to performance at night. <laughs> it was 
it's quite a schedule. Dallas was fortunate to be the benefactors of that experience. So we probably want to cover a little bit, give some lip service to the famous Baylor Trinity debacle. Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> that was next on my list. Is that what's next? Yeah, that's what I had next. Because that was in 1964. Right. Well, the theater hadn't been open that long. The Graduate School of Baylor was at the Dallas Theater Center. Well, at Baylor, they did a production of Long Day's Journey Into Night. And somehow or other, Mr. Baker got the rights. They were the first university to get the rights to do the show. He somehow talked to Carlotta O'Neill or something, and he got the rights. And it was a big coup. And uh, there were a couple of faculty members played the parents in the show, and then students played, you know, the two boys. They opened. Well, at, at this time, Baylor was in a fundraising campaign, going to the churches, raising money. A Baptist minister brought a group of nine and 10 year olds to see the play. Long day's journey in tonight. <laughs> and he was horrified. There was dope. They were talked about sex. I mean, they cursed. Oh boy, how, how do you, oh, he was in fury. He writes the president of the university. You need to close this play. Well, the president of the university and Paul Baker were buddies. They were good friends. Abner McCall was his name. He was a judge. And they were friends. But he's, Baker gets a letter from his buddy saying, you need to close this play. And Baker said, I won't close it. You can close it, but I'm not going to close it. Well, they closed it. Well, this caused a major furor. I mean, Baylor, and here we are now in the 60s, there are student protests going on all over the country, but not at Baylor. Well, the students got up and marched on the administration hall over the closing of this play. Mm -hmm. The movie with Catherine Hepburn and was just coming out, Joseph Levine, producer, he called Baker and he said, I will send you a copy of the film to show to those ticket holders who didn't get to see the play. And he said, no, no, you won't do that. We'll just lay low, it will pass. It was a big deal. And it, was, it made all the national press and so forth closing this play. So in fact, we got up a production we had done a, recently of Julius Caesar, and we took it down to Waco, toured it to Waco and played in big Waco Hall to say, see, we do good work. We do Shakespeare, you know, everything to just calm the waters. So that, that had been in December. In February, Baker got a letter from the president saying, you will do no plays that can be construed as a slur upon the Christian religion. And he also questioned that one of the faculty members was Jewish. So at that point, they saw the writing was on the wall. They began secret negotiations with Trinity University. Trinity said, we will build you a new theater. We will take your graduate school and all of the MFA students, and we'll take the faculty. Well, a couple of the faculty members said, no, they weren't going to change. They were going to just retire or leave. But the rest of the faculty all went. So in April, Jean, Eugene McKinney wrote this gorgeous resignation piece about why they were leaving and so forth. It was really nice. And they said, and this is all we will say about it. And they turned that in. We are all resigning. And they did. Well, of course, Baylor went nuts. They did everything to try and goad them into responding to something so that they could get a fight going. They, they never said another word, except that they just say, we refer you to our statement. Well, Baylor was censored by the University Professors Association that gives accreditation. I mean, they, they, all, they were about to lose their accreditation. I mean, you're closing Nobel Prize winner Eugene O'Neill you're closing his play. It caused a huge furor, all in the national press. Baylor, 30 some odd years later, 
gave a big ceremony for Paul Baker, honoring him as one of their top professors ever. But it took 30 years. And in the meantime, they tore down Studio One and went to, they eliminated them completely, tore them down. These incredibly unique theaters, they, in, they tore them down and they built a standard proscenium stage in another building on another site. I mean, that's how bad it was. So uh, there were a lot of people who had finished all their classes up in, in, in Dallas for their masters. There was this mad rush in, in the summer. And everybody writing theses and all the faculty members reading their theses and notes so they get it done. So they graduated from the Baylor. The rest of us, I, myself included, I had not even thought of a thesis at the time. So everybody's writing theses and so forth to get, not everybody, about half of, of we're doing, the rest of us, we're gonna we're, we're just be Trinity students and get it from Trinity. Also, this is all going on in the summer of 64. In the meantime, that spring, the theater center was invited to go bring a show to the Theater of Nations in Paris. Right. This show was Journey to Jefferson, which is uh, an adaptation of Faulkner's As I Lay Dying. We had done it originally at Baylor uh, when I was still at Baylor. In fact, I played Anse Bundren. And then it came, we, we did it in, they did it in, we did it in Dallas. I, and another actor older than I was, much, much more suited to the role. He was older than I was, played Anse. And we did it. It was, and we, it was called As I Lay Dying. Here, we're gonna take this show to Europe. We're gonna play Paris and, and Frankfurt and Ostend and Brussels. Stanley Marcus of Neiman Marcus fame said, you can't take, this is the summer of 64, right after the assassination of Kennedy. He said, you can't take a play to Europe from Dallas called As I Lay Dying. Can't do that. And so they changed the title to Journey to Jefferson. I never knew that. Yeah. I just assumed it had was poetic license, had mm -hmm. something to do with the rights. Mm -mm. I never, I, that's the first time I've ever heard that story. Randy. Thanks to Stanley Marcus. He just said, you can't do that because Europe is in, you know, pretty stirred up about the assassination. Well, we all were. We all were. So. We all were. Schools were closed, the immediate effects of it, but the long-lasting effects on Dallas, it cast an were incredible. Huge. huge. And so, blankets. We go, off we go to Europe. Most of us, it's the first time we ever went, you know, we'd ever been. It was an amazing experience for all of us. I mean, most of the people are, you know, they're, they're from Texas or they're where forever, but they've never been to Europe. And so this was a real eye opener for all of us. There's an incredible uh, photograph of all of you boarding the airplane. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In total 60s hairdos. In, in year. Yeah, year. yeah, yeah. So we go <laughs> and we win the special jury prize at the Theater of Nations. Right. The production. I mean, it was amazing. And and the, the artistic director of the theater, he took us all out to a fancy French restaurant for dinner. And there were like 20, 25 people. I mean, you know, it was, the whole thing was mind blowing for all of us. While I was there, that's when I auditioned at all the schools in London, theater schools, because I had received this scholarship from the Dallas Shakespeare Club to study in London. And uh, I got accepted in all four. And I chose to go to Lambda because it was a one-year course. Ah. Otherwise, the others were all had to be there two or three years, and I couldn't do that. I had, I had the money for one year, and so. So they allowed you to leave the company to leave the Dallas Theater well, Center. To yeah, yeah, and you know, I was while we were over there, we had a a, a week ten day break between Frankfurt and Paris. So I go to London, and while there, saw Laurence Olivier in three plays. <laughs> I saw his famous Othello. So I'm in love for love and his incredible production of Uncle Vanya. So I, my mind was properly blown by doing this, seeing these shows in London. And I auditioned and I got accepted. 
and but I, but for a year away. So I came. I went back to Dallas. So you came back in '65, then, or fall '64, spring '65. Right. In right. fall of '65, I went to London. It was an amazing experience for all of us, and we won this prize. One funny anecdote was the theater in Germany, the Stadtische Bühne. It's a huge city theater, you know, with every modern, a lot of technical stuff we'd never seen before, and we come in with this raggedy. <laughs> these ragged old Mississippi farmer costumes. And the major set piece was this wagon, an old farm wagon that we'd found in a farm somewhere. Right. <laughs> well, all that stuff was shipped over. The Germans, they unpacked it and they put the, the wagon that was in pieces and they put the wagon together and they greased it up. And so it, it <laughs> when the guys who played the mules picked the thing and started just, whoosh, whoosh, it just, it, it, it was so greased up and all, it moved so easy. <laughs> Nobody they go, oh my God, <laughs> this was amazing. So we, oh. we, we did it. It was a remarkable experience. I remember indelibly, I think I remember every moment of that production, uh, sitting in that single balcony row yes. at the back of the theater. The river and I have, I have to say that of all of the major theater, the mind changing, mind opening. Mm -hmm. I didn't know you could do that experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Journey to Jefferson might have been the first experience that actually, as you said, blew my mind, yes. <laughs> but opened my creative imagination in a way that had not been opened before. And I was at that time, I graduated SMU in 1970, I think. So the 63-64 season at mm -hmm. Dallas Theater Center that included this production of Journey to Jefferson was early on. Mm -hmm. I was recently out of high school. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, since then, I can only put productions like Mabu Mines, Dressed Like an Egg, Ooh. maybe some Peter Brooks, Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, I guess you have to include that because it's yeah, of course. almost cliche now. Yeah. But as Journey to Jefferson was outside of my experience, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it was prophetic in that it became my core experience and how I developed as an artist in the theater. Oh. That's that's very exciting. That's marvelous. And it was you guys oh, wow. that did it, you know. And it was an amazing set. I mean, there was a, a psych, the psych or the cyclorama was a, a sewn together burlap bag. And of course, it would take light wonderfully. You know, you could even use it almost like a scrim, put light behind it, light would come through it. But it, the textures of the burlap bags could do great things on the psych. And then you had this revolving stage with a wagon being pulled by two guys and yeah. a family sitting in the wagon with a coffin. And it would go around this, it, uh, and there was the, the famous, the river crossing. I don't know if it's a, a no theater, Japanese theater technique of the big cloth with people holding and waving it. And the wagon, you'd see the wagon start into it, and the thing would come up and they'd pull the wagon off and then you'd see the actors behind the cloth that were in the water. The wagon had supposedly tipped over and we're in the water and this is going on. It was an amazing, amazing scene. <laughs> no, it was a remarkable. And the, the other thing about it was the idea of the ensemble as a company was the absolute imperative of sharing the stage. Mm, mm. Always. I mean, certainly there were productions that stood out like Mary Sue doing Medea or whatnot, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it was more the ensemble idea that was generated and embraced in Journey to Jefferson that was the signature of that ensemble, of that company. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was seamless. There was no distinction between the audience and the what we were observing on stage, even though it wasn't Studio One with multiple mm. stages yeah. and swivel chairs, you still got the idea of being completely embraced by the performances and by the production itself. It's very exciting to do. We brought it back yes. later. 
And that this time I played Ans Mundrin again. <laughs> a little bit older, still not really old enough to do it, but I was had a good wig and I do good makeup. And so, you know, I, I played Ans Mundrin when we brought it back, but it, because it, it was always, it was a signature performance, uh, production, no question. It was, and, and richly deserved the uh, Theater of Nations Award. I yeah, mean, yeah. Just but what, were we surprised? <laughs> Did you all ever go back? No, no, no. That was another thing. Baker brought over a lot of European directors. He brought over Harry Buchwitz, who was the artistic director of the Stadtische, the theater we played at in Frankfurt, and then later went to the big theater in Zurich. He directed Caucasian Chalk Circle. Then he came back several years later and directed Marat Saad, and his production of Marat Saad, which was, both of these shows were real mind bogglers, incredible productions. He was a wonderful director. Brought over Robin Lovejoy from the Old Tote Theater Company in Sydney, Australia. And he did 18th century comedy, uh, The Rivals. And then he did, came back years later and did Much Ado About Nothing. Mm. He brought over a wonderful director from Romania to do a Vaclav Havel play. Another British director came over and did Twelfth Night. We get to the experience of working with these wonderful directors and we didn't even have to leave home. You know, there they were. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a, it was a, that part of it was uh, an amazing experience. How exciting! Working. We're up to the late '60s now. What? Yeah. Uh... Okay. Well, the, all right. In in '68, that was when Burgess Meredith called Paul Baker and said, "I want to do this premiere of new new play by Patty Chayefsky called The Latent Heterosexual," and it was written for and will he will come down and do. Zero must tell. Would you do it? Baker said, uh, yeah, <laughs> you will do it. He said, there's one hitch. Patty Chayefsky demands that no New York theater critics be invited to come <laughs> down and see it. The only people who can review it are the two local newspapers in Dallas. That's all, the only people who can review it. So down they come. Oh, and, the, and another actor was brought, Jules Munchen was playing kind of the, the second lead in it. And it, this was, uh, he, it was kind of his return. He had been a big, he had done a lot of movies and so forth and he hadn't done anything in a while. And this was kind of be his return. So we did it and it was, I mean, Zero Mostel, talk about a force of nature. I mean, we had never seen anything like him. And he, he was just very funny. I mean, the first rehearsal, he gets up and he starts to blocking the first scene and he, he walks across and he dropped his pants. You know, just <laughs> dropped his pants. I mean, he kept us laughing all the time, but it was a, a remarkable performance because he was playing this really wildly gay poet. He has a very successful book of poetry that is tax-wise, he needs to be married. So the, it all has to do with his, his lawyers, his tax lawyers and accountants. And so they say, you need, we'll get you a call girl, high price call girl. You marry her and that will solve your tax problem. So they get her and of course, he falls in love with her, unless we have the latent heterosexual. Right. Yeah. And it was an amazing experience. It, lay, it then went to Los Angeles and played at what it was the time it called the Huntington Hartford. I think it's now the Geffen Playhouse. We did that, and that became my first equity job. I was like the, the cast mascot. And uh, Zero, every night, I would go into his dressing room, and he had, he had this massive bald head with hair, you know, long hair. And I would take a black eyebrow pencil and I would make a little more, and I would cover his entire head with eyebrow pencil and make it black. And then he would take all this hair and bring it over, you know, swirl it around, look like he had hair. And then late in the show, the character commits Harry Carey and he was, he was dressed in a kimono, but he looked very Japanese with that, like that. And, and with his hair streaming down the back and then, and he commits it. That's so this is kind of amazing, but I would, I went with him every night, even in L.A., and he had his dresser and everything. I still did his hair, yeah, you know. And so he and Burgess Meredith would take me out to Chasen's and the Brown Derby, and all. it was great. I had a wonderful time. But he said to me, Zero said, because it was my first thing, he said, Randy, always remember, screw management, because they're going to try to screw you. Well, then I watched him do just that. 
They had arranged a five-city tour going into Broadway. Press was already starting in New York about it. And then Zero waited until just like the last couple of performances and said, you know, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to stay here in L.A. and make movies. I remember seeing Jules Munchen down on his knee begging to go. Well, do it for Randy. Do it for Randy. This is his first, you know, I mean, it was bizarre experience. So he stayed in L.A. He made a few movies, none of which were successful. Because while I was there in L.A., that's when I, I saw The Producers, which was a great movie. But he'd already made that. Chayefsky and Meredith, who were very close friends with Zero, felt utterly betrayed. Yeah, in fact, Chayefsky never wrote another play. Because of that, he only wrote film scripts. He wouldn't write a play after that. One thing I noticed about that season, the 67-68 season that included the latent heterosexual, I'm counting 20 productions mm. that year from Delicate Balance to Twelfth Night, Spoon River, the Odd Couple, Privateer Public, Pinocchio, Streetcar Named Desire, The Knack, Latent Heterosexual, Charlie's Aunt, Fingertomb, Spoon River. Uh, it goes on and on forever. How did that happen? Were there two theaters well, by that point? By that, it, yeah, just a little before that, it took a space down in the basement of the theater where the shop was, and he built this thing. It was called the Down Center Stage. It seated 50 people. It was in the basement. He had two theaters going. Some of those productions, like Pinocchio and all, they had started what was called the Magic Turtle series, which was for children. So on Saturdays, they would do children, uh, children's plays. And so between that's that's how you had 20 some up productions. And that's how there were that many. Oh, right. I, I, I just remember, I have to backtrack for this one funny story. Right, please. Again, my first year in Dallas. And we did a new play called Joshua Bean and God which was written by two writers from the Dallas Times-Herald. And they felt that this play had real potential to go to New York. And they brought in to play Joshua Bean, the star, Burl Ives. So he comes in. Burl Ives hadn't been on stage since Cat on a Hot Tin Reef. Been a while. And he was, wasn't great with lines. So he was worried about it. So built into every set, there would be a little place where there was somebody with a script could be, could be sitting in there on the stage, but you couldn't see him. A prompter. Yeah, and, and hit a prompter. And uh, his thing was he would hit, hit it with, he had a cane and he'd hit it with a cane and they would give him the line, <laughs> you know. And, and uh, his entrance was just a spectacular entrance, a silhouette of him coming in to the stage on a mule, big mule, singing a hymn. Wow, it was spectacular. Well. Yeah, this is great. So the mule was fine, and no problem with all the rehearsals. They, they, they did a thing, and then they would go, turn around and go off stage. First audience would come in on. He comes on singing in uh, Amazing Grace or whatever. And the, the, the audience goes, Whoa! You know, they, ah, yeah, yeah. that mule went, Whoa! <laughs> Looked out, saw, turned around practically midair, and Burl Ives is trying to bail off to get off of him, you know, and he went and he took off, went up. Well, Burl, Burl, I wouldn't get on him again. He, <laughs> he led him on, you know, and so forth. But at the time when we were doing this, we're not talking that far past uh, Joe McCarthy and the Red Scare and all that kind of stuff. We got picketed by the Committee for the Purification of the Arts. They would stand out the foot uh, uh, at the entrance to the driveway into the with signs and we had a, a big billboards with Burl Ives picture. And so we were picketed because he had been blacklisted. He had been named. No, I think he was blacklisted by the House on Un-American yeah. Activities. Yeah. Yeah. So, and they, we had red paint thrown on onto our posters and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Horrifying. And so <laughs> there's a, a hill when you're coming down Blackburn Avenue to turn into the driveway. It's a hill. And, you, and Preston Jones came up with this whole thing about hit a picket. <laughs> he come, come swirling into that thing and they all have to scatter <laughs> as we come up. But we played that show. And of course, it didn't affect the box office. We were sold out the whole run. Oh, of course. The show didn't go on. And Burl Ives was a bit of a pickle. He, his wife was his manager. And she sat out in the audience every rehearsal 
and she would then talk to him afterwards. They would come up and change the staging so that he always, always was the focus. We'd all have to turn three quarters up, you know, to fit. Everything had to face him. And he would ad lib. Oh, God, would he ad lib. Playwrights were getting a little upset about this. So they decided they wanted to tape him and say, and confront him and say, here, this is what you're saying. You know, this is not what the script is. He found out about the taping and he waits until it's, you know, 30, 45 minutes to curtain. And Robin Baker Flat was playing in the show at a park. And he said, I won't go on with that girl. She's trying to steal stage from me because it was a total fiction. So she really got a girl who happened, she happened to have an understudy. And got that. So Robin sat up in the dressing room with this girl going over because she's a girl that never rehearsed. And, you know, going over everything, telling her before she would go on that night. But he did it because he, obviously, it's the Paul Baker's daughter. He wanted to get at Baker. And so, they, so anyway, the show never went on from there. We've run out of time. I'd like to thank our guest and you, our listeners, for tuning in. Please join us for new episodes featuring designers, playwrights, actors, and directors discussing the lives and careers of legendary theater luminaries and how their work developed. This is your host, John Arnone, for I am the space where I am.